Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of Husky Talk, syndicated by the SMU Journal. My name is Jeremy Hebb and I'm recording out of Halifax, Nova Scotia. This is going to be a space where we'll focus on issues facing students both now and in our future. Uh, we'll, we'll be discussing current events, conducting some interviews along the way. The goal here is to learn and, and be actively engaged with the St. Mary's community. Our, our media has become disengaged with student issues while our politicians serve platitudes in place of political platforms every single election year. The reality is bold changes that would benefit students like free tuition, affordable housing, improved transit, higher minimum wage, guaranteed incomes, interest-free loans, they won't happen unless the right people are put into the right places. And it's not just at the federal level. It's the officials elected at the municipal and provincial races often have a greater impact at the end of the day. This fall, there is definitely an election in Halifax for the municipal councillors. There could be one federally, uh, and there also is possibility that there is one uh, provincially after Premier Stephen McNeil's resignation goes through. Uh, this is an inflection moment in our lives. With the coronavirus here for the foreseeable future, you have a choice to give your say in who should be running your city, province, and country. Please register to vote and check out your local candidates. And for our first interview, I was joined by the both St. Mary's Student Association and Canadian Alliance of Student Associations President, Bryn DeChastelin. This interview was recorded on July 3rd. All right, so today, Bryn DeChastelin is from SMUSA and uh, CASA, which is the Canadian uh, Alliance's Student Associations. Uh, he's the president of both, and he's going to be joining us for an interview today. Thanks for joining us, Bryn. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you. Um, we'll just start with your role at SMUSA in general. Um, uh, what does SMUSA play in general at the university? Yeah, so I, in my role as president this year, I kind of take on the role as primary spokesperson uh, for our students. So we represent... Uh, all undergrad and graduate students, uh, as well as students from the Atlantic School of Theology. And so uh, we kind of serve as the main representatives for students on a number of university committees, uh, most notably through the university senate uh, or academic senate and our board of governors. Uh, so we tend to work on policy projects together. We try and bring forward uh, student interest and, and also data and testimonial from students. So we kind of view our role as trying to meet students halfway to be able to understand some of the challenges that they're facing and then to take that information, share that with the university in the hopes that we can make some positive change. How are you involved with the, with the budget process at, at SMUSA in general or at SMU in general? Sorry. Yeah, so um, based on some requirements with the province, the, the student association does have to be consulted through the university's budget process, and that happens in a few ways. Uh, the first one would be that we have two representatives on the university's budget advisory committee, uh, which is basically a committee that has uh, a number of different representatives from, from different departments uh, and is run by our VP finance and administration for the university. Uh, and basically it's an opportunity for departments to come forward and, and talk about projects that they might need a little bit of funding for that they'd like to see uh, something, you know, some funding allocated in the budget for it. Um, and we basically sit there to, to talk about some student priorities. We have a chance to present every year on some things that uh, SMUSA would like to see in our budget or some things that we might like to avoid. Uh, we also have representation on our university's board of governors. Uh, and so we, we have an opportunity to vote on the budget uh, through the finance committee for the board. And again, uh, at a general board meeting uh, also. So we have four representatives on the board 
uh, two that come from our executive team and two that come from our board of directors. Uh, and I'll also mention that as a part of kind of the university's flowchart for the budget process, they also um, they also consult directly with our board of directors. So they have a chance to sit down and go through the budget, talk about some of the changes, uh, and, and have kind of a, a sit down session with the board as well. So it, it's a nice opportunity for kind of more uh, elected officials on the student side to actually get a chance to, mm -hmm. to speak to the university's budget and our priorities. How has SMUSA been adjusting to the online operations at, at SMU in general with everything transitioning right now? Yeah, it's, it's been a pretty easy transition to work from home uh, on the executive side and with some of our full-time staff. So we've been able to, to get some of our like computers out of the office and, and into to people's homes, which has been pretty easy. The tough part right now is, is really thinking about how we're going to transition some of our services in the fall. So for example, our, our Goresbrook uh, lounge has been shut for a few months now and we're trying to see you know, when we'll be able to, to reopen that on campus and what some of the options will be like in the fall. Um, but also thinking about something like our Husky Patrol that we would, you know, be using through the year to give students a safe ride home. Uh, you know, we're, we're thinking about whether that will be needed if, if there won't be kind of as many students in the HRM uh, or specifically on campus in September. Um, but also trying to come up with some creative ways that we can still use those services. So for the last... Uh, Probably the last eight weeks or so, we've been uh, helping to deliver food uh, from local food banks uh, to houses where, where families might not be able to, uh, to feel or wouldn't feel comfortable kind of getting out of their house right now and, and going into the community. So that's been one way we've been able to kind of use those vans that we have uh, as opposed to leaving them sitting around to, to be out in the community a bit more. So that's been like, I think, the tough part and also the fun part to try and be a little bit creative about what we can do in September. And uh, what, what sort of a push has, has SMUSA made in general for uh, concessions from, from the government and from SMU for, for students and low-income students? You know, a lot of students tend to work minimum wage jobs and yeah. uh, they're definitely getting hit pretty hard right now. A hundred percent. And that's what we've been hearing from a lot of the students that we've been reaching out to that, you know, I think this is really a time where the value of education is is really being questioned. And I think a lot of students are, you know, trying to see whether they're going to be in a, a financial position in September to uh, to actually be able to come back. So to start on the uh, on the kind of the advocacy side, uh, one of the things that I was working on in my previous role as our VP academic uh, and advocacy back in March uh, was working to, to make sure that all students would be eligible for the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. So uh, CASA, which you mentioned, our, our federal advocacy group, uh, the Canadian Alliance of Student Associations, we worked very closely with them uh, over kind of the first few weeks of COVID to uh, advocate for the emergency student benefit. Uh, and we were really happy to see when that came through in April. Uh, and really our, our area of focus since then has been the gap that was created with international students because right now, whether it's the, the response benefit, the student benefit, or, or recently the student service grant as well, international students aren't eligible for any of them. So we've been working at the federal level and at the provincial level to try and uh, see if there are some funds that could be allocated towards international students, especially for those that are stuck in Halifax that maybe aren't able to get home because of border restrictions right now. Uh, and similarly, we've been bringing up those same concerns on the university front in terms of, uh, you know, trying to get a better sense uh, of what some of the financial aid that the university is able to offer uh, is going to be. We know that there were a few programs that they put in place um, in terms of giving students kind of some emergency bursaries to get through, uh, get through the summer. But at the same time, we know that hasn't been enough for every student. Uh, so another thing that we've been working on has been taking a close look at uh, kind of the fees that fall outside of tuition. So looking at things like the athletics and recreation fee or a technology fee. And we're really trying to get a, a good sense from the university about like, 
what uh, or which of those fees are actually going directly towards services that students can still access and what are fees that you know would only really be relevant if we were on campus so we were able to to get the athletics and recreation fee uh, waived for the spring and summer semesters because the Hamburg Center isn't open um, and that's something we're continuing to do looking into the fall it's just we'd like to be able to be in a position where we could tell any student like these are all the fees you're paying this is exactly what it's going towards and why mm -hmm. it makes sense I think at the end of the day, you know, money's going to be tight for everyone and, and we want every student to know exactly what it's going towards. Uh, another thing that, that, that I wanted to talk about was the, the fees that we've already paid for from, from last semester as well. Um, I know that, that some students have been successful in asking for different refunds on different things, um, but I know that in some cases, like with the parking pass, that you've had to explicitly ask the school for a refund. Um, is, is there any sort of a, a plan from SNUSA to, to attack that and try and get some of that money returned to students without us having to go forward and ask for it? That's a really great question, because I, I think you're exactly right that, you know, you'd love for refunds, uh, or we'd all love for refunds in this case to be a little bit more proactive or uh, maybe coming without kind of the, the student request needing to come through. And I think, you know, what I would say to you, we don't have an explicit plan in place at this time. It, it, there's ongoing discussions about finances from last semester and, and looking in terms of what we can uh, what we can be able to give back to students. And I think, you know, looking at the university's perspective, it was such a, a shift from kind of the emergency response to trying to deal with some of the reaction and, and now some of the planning for the fall. Um, but it's those kind of things that, that from my perspective uh, and, and Smuse's perspective, we don't want those to get lost in, in the transition. And I think one of the challenges with the COVID period is like every day something new is happening. There's a new story and it's very easy for things to, to kind of fall through the cracks. So to your point, like especially looking at parking passes, our focus back in, in March had been a little bit more on residents and trying to make sure that students that uh, were maybe not being forced out of residence rooms, but were, you know, being asked to leave or, or consider going home for, for health and safety reasons. That was a big focus for us. But it's a very good point that, that parking passes weren't necessarily something that we focused on initially. And so I think continuing to get student feedback where we can and hearing about what fees students are, are looking to get back is important from our perspective so that we can help to kind of make a push for that in, a, in all of the committees we sit on and in all the avenues that we have in terms of connecting with the university. Right. And you, you had mentioned a lot about so far about the difference between, you know, international and domestic students. I think going forward that it's it's clear that at least for the, the winter semester, or so the fall semester, sorry, that uh, students, it doesn't really matter where you're at. Uh, why aren't all students be considered the same? And are, are the fees going to be different? I know I'd seen uh, um, an increase for domestic students proposed at 3% for tuition and international for 7%. Uh, right now I could go down and I could move to Cuba or Korea or wherever, and I'd still be considered a domestic student, right? Um, so I'm just wondering if Smuse is doing anything about that. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And um, so our, our tuition fees have been set kind of, um, I say pre-COVID in terms of before the university went to, uh, to online delivery, because we know uh, COVID's been a global pandemic for, for quite a while. But SMUSA had never supported a 7% increase for international tuition. Uh, and we had hoped to, to have the same increase from the year before, which was 3% for domestic and 3% for international. And the reason that it's, it's 3% for domestic tuition is because there's a, a memorandum of understanding between uh, student associations, the government, and universities that domestic tuition uh, can only be increased at a maximum of 3% per year. Uh, and so we weren't necessarily surprised to see that amount because the, the cap was in place. Uh, but really our focus is that, you know, in our opinion, 
uh, tuition increases should be equitable because you know another important thing to consider here is that a three percent increase for domestic students is a three uh, three percent of a smaller number to begin with right because international students pay larger tuition so we had hoped that the increase would be the same for international and domestic students and it's something that we've continued to raise whether it's a, at senate or the board of governors and in some of our meetings as well that you know for a lot of students uh, it's going to be really challenging to, to be able to afford to pay tuition in the fall and as i already mentioned you know international students aren't eligible for a lot of these aid programs that uh, a lot of domestic students are taking advantage of and for good reason we haven't gotten the impression there'll be a lot of changes to tuition at this time or, or any changes, um, but we're hopeful that there'll be some sort of, uh, you know, assistance provided to students and some additional consideration about the fact that a lot of us are going to be in, uh, you know, increased financial need in September. You know, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about the, the transition going online, you know, how the quality is going to be there still with the educational value and, and the content and uh, a bit about the connectivity with the with the different students because I know it's going to be a, a little a little frustrating for a lot of people, right? It's definitely going to be different, and I think you know one of the the challenges for a lot of us right now is we just have like no sense of really of what to expect, um, and I think that you know I in I would be honest and say that I think a lot of us you know if we didn't have one ourselves, we heard about, you know, a student that had a negative experience uh, with the transition back in March. And so I think a lot of us are, you know, understandably concerned about what it's going to look like in September. We're still looking at, you know, the potential for us to be hosting events on campus or to allow societies to be, uh, to be hosting events if it's possible and if it's safe to do so. Uh, so right now we've been kind of planning as if everything's online, as if a second wave is going to come and we'll be kind of in quarantine again. But we have a number of plans in our back pocket in terms of uh, running some events or some programming if we're able to. Um, but that said, I think the, the biggest thing I'm concerned about is, you know, how are, uh, how are we going to replicate you know, the experience of being able to sit in class next to your peers or, or to be able to make friends and, and have those discussions. So we've been looking at ways that, um, you know, how we would usually connect to that is on the side of like our societies or events or get togethers that we're having. And, you know, there's definitely something to be said for events that can be moved on to Zoom or, you know, to Microsoft Teams. But our hope is that, uh, you know, if students are willing to kind of buy into to needing to put some extra effort in that uh, that social side that we're hoping that there'll be enough available to people if they're willing to take it up. Are you concerned that any of these changes are, are going to be permanent? I, I'm definitely uh, of the opinion that, you know, university education is never going to be the same uh, post COVID. And I think that, you know, one of the concerns that we have uh, at SMISA is making sure that, uh, you know, we're very clear about what changes are going to be temporary as we get through, you know, this year of uncertainty, what changes are going to be permanent or the university's thinking about making permanent. Um, and I think from our perspective, you know, we want to ensure that uh, the, the values that a lot of SMU students have, what they enjoy about SMU, what keeps them coming back, uh, we want to make sure that those aren't compromised. So the example that comes to mind, and, and one of the reasons I first came to SMU was because on my tour, I was told that the uh, average first year class size was only 40 students. Right. So and we know we have some bigger classes uh, every year, but at the same time, you know, you can get in your second and third year and be in a class of 10 or 15 people. So that's 100 percent one of those values that we don't want to see the university compromise moving forward. And I think as we as we get to a place where we're starting to talk about coming back to campus uh, and, you know, whether that's in January, whether that's thinking about years to come, that'll definitely be something that we're bringing up in, in the discussions that we're a part of in terms of making sure that we're returning to what we're, we're able to do and, and maybe not what the easiest decision would be. Uh, let's talk about yourself a little bit. Everyone loves doing yeah. that. Um, 
So uh, where, where are you from originally? And how, how long have you been in Halifax? And what made you choose, what made you choose SMU? How long have you been here? I grew up in uh, Georgetown, which is a, a small community in Ontario, just north of Mississauga. Came out to visit uh, Dalhousie and Kings and, and SMU back in uh, October of 2016. Um, and really just fell in love with the campus. I, I thought there was kind of a nice energy here. Uh, and I was very interested in our Model UN program uh, that was run through the political science department. So yeah, um, in, uh, I ended up uh, moving out here, I guess, in, in late August uh, 2017 uh, and started my first year then. So I'm, uh, yeah, from Ontario, but very happy on the East Coast now. So I don't think I'll be leaving anytime soon. Uh, I was going to ask you, like, what, what different societies are you involved with outside of SME? You mentioned, uh, are you involved with Enactus? Or would... Yeah, I've, I've been a kind of a, a member on the outskirts of Enactus for a few years. I have never had kind of too much time to, um, to be able to get a bit more involved in their leadership team, but really like the work that they do. Uh, and I've also been, Model UN is probably the society I've given the, the most time to over the last few years. Um, really nice that that has the classroom component as well. So it's, it's been able to kind of really connect what's, what's gone on for me in class and uh, some of the community involvement. Um, and yeah, I, I've kind of jumped around some, some other societies uh, as well over the years and have, uh, have closely worked with a few mental health projects out of the, uh, the counseling center with the university as well. So I was a, a part of one of the first years of uh, Mentality, which was a program focused on uh, men's mental health at the university. Uh, and similarly worked with a, a program called Man Made, which was uh, kind of a, a four-week session on on consent and healthy relationships geared towards uh, men on campus as well. So that was kind of uh, the focus, I guess, for my first two years. And then uh, that kind of uh, taught me a little bit about SMUSA and what some of the options were there. And I, I applied for a VP position uh, at the end of my second year. And, and that's uh, uh, where I started with SMUSA and, and last year kind of fell in love with it, which is uh, what led me into the election. So what's been your favorite class you've taken other than Model UN? I'm not going to give you that one. Um, I, I would say probably the most interesting course I took has nothing to do with my degree, but I took a, a second year English course on post-colonial literature, um, which I, I was never much of a reader, uh, like a fiction reader growing up. So it was kind of nice to like have to do that for homework in a class and uh, read some really interesting texts from uh, from India and from the, the African continent as well, which I think I just never was really exposed to growing up. So I often find that like some of the concepts I learned in that class like connect to a number of other things. So it was kind of an interesting thing to take at the start of my degree. And uh, um, I always think it's nice when you're able to take an elective or a course that's kind of outside your area of study. Yeah, definitely. How have you been impacted personally by this? And, and you know, what are, what are your feelings as a student? Yeah, I think the first thing I would say, I am very lucky to be employed uh, by the Student Association right now. So I've had no break uh, in my employment. Um, I think that the biggest impact for me has been on a travel side, just because uh, for a while I was unable to, to get home to Ontario, had to mute, uh, move a few, a few summer plans around and uh, some of my, uh, my opportunities to go home have been shifted. Uh, and really that's you know shown to me, I'm, I'm feeling a lot for international students who uh, you know, maybe for them, it's not a, a conversation of needing to self-isolate when they go home. It's actually that they're not able to leave at all or that they might not be able to come back if they do. Um, so I'll, I'll be honest, I think I've been one of the lucky students and I'm, I'm very aware of that given that I, I'm still able to work and that, uh, you know, I live in the city. I have, I have decent Wi-Fi here to be completing my courses. So um, I'm, I'm definitely thinking a lot about the students who are a bit less fortunate than I am right now and, and trying to work as hard as I can to help alleviate some of those concerns.
Uh, Will, will you or SPUSA be considering uh, pursuing an increase to mental health coverage? Uh, it, it's currently at $1,000 a year, which at Nova Scotia rates only covers five sessions with a psychiatrist. Uh, what options are available for, for, for SMU? Yeah, so we, we do offer the, uh, the health plan, which gives, uh, to your point, $1,000, which boils down to, to five sessions uh, externally. We know that in, in previous years, and this is actually a question that, that I've had for, for student affairs, and I'm interested to kind of see where it goes, but a lot of students would be able to access our, count, uh, our counseling center for free. Um, and so that, that's something that I am wondering about how that'll transition online, because what we're hearing from some of our colleagues at other schools as well is that uh, oftentimes based on, on some regulations that, to be honest, I don't fully understand, um, you know, if you're seeing a counselor in Nova Scotia, if you move to another province or if you move out of the country, you might no longer be able to, uh, to be speaking with that same counselor. You might not be able to receive that service. So given the fact that, you know, students are being told that they should stay where they feel comfortable and that they don't need to come back to Halifax for their courses, uh, I am a bit curious as to, you know, what counseling options might be provided by the university on that side. Um, on the other hand, in terms of looking at our health plan, one of our biggest concerns right now is, is trying to make sure that, uh, you know, our fees for our health plan stay as low as possible. Um, so in, in terms of adding uh, services for students, there might be an additional fee uh, that would go along with that. So we're definitely taking uh, some time over the summer to review the services that we can provide. But we also know that uh, students are facing increased fees uh, in a number of, of uh, areas in their life. So we're trying to keep the cost that we control as, as low as possible. Um, so we've talked a bit about the about the CERB and the CESB and how they relate back to students. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about the the uh, Canada uh, Student Service Grant there and uh, maybe about the whole program in general. Yeah, so we we first heard about that program uh, the same time that the emergency student benefit was announced back in April. Um, but we had some questions about it just because there weren't a lot of details provided at the time. And uh, I think, you know, the, the concept of paying students for volunteer work is something that a lot of us had questions about and were kind of curious to see what it was going to look like. Um, and at the end of the day, I think, you know, what I've been happy about is that, you know, this the, the federal government, I think, has definitely seen that students have been uh, you know, in a, a time of increased need. And so whether it's coming through the response benefit or the student benefit or even the, the student service grant, I'm really happy to see that there's been so much money invested in students. That doesn't mean there aren't some things uh, that I'd like some clarification on or uh, some students that I think are still left behind. So I already mentioned uh, international students, I think, you know, really need some support right now, given uh, you know, not only that international students in Canada provide roughly $26 billion to the economy, but also, you know, at a, at a campus as international as St. Mary's, I think we all know that, um, you know, international students bring a tremendous amount of value and experience to our classrooms as well. And so I, I think it's disappointing to see that the, the government hasn't been supporting them uh, to this point anyway. But in terms of the, the student service grant, I was also really disappointed to see that there was an age cap uh, for students. Uh, you had to be under 30. Um, which I think is a bit ridiculous because we know that for a lot of uh, mature students that are over 30, you know, some of them might have families, might be responsible for childcare right now. And so potentially it's, you know, it's not as simple a question of, you know, are they able to find a job? It's also, do they have the time to, uh, to be able to, um, to go and work and also take care of their, their children or, or potentially other forms of uh, care that they need to be providing to their family? So I was really disappointed to see that there was an age cap on that. And it's been something that we've been raising at the, the federal level as well. Um, but the, the student service grant, it, it appears that it'll pay, you know, students roughly $1,000 for every 100 hours of work uh, 
uh, volunteer work that they do uh, over the summer. And you know, it was interesting to see today that they've uh, that the federal government and we have gone separate directions on this because we definitely had some concerns uh, about the administration of the program. So specifically, wondering you know what it was going to mean for students and their privacy with it going through a um, kind of a third party organization and wondering where the student data would be held. Um, and also, you know, just thinking about the, the money that potentially could be invested directly into students as opposed to being invested in a third party organization to administer the program. So I'm, I'm very curious now to see what the next steps of this will be to see if there's any delay for students uh, in terms of being able to access this money. Uh, and my biggest question is, you know, for those students who have already signed up for the program, where's their data right now, who's housing it and uh, kind of what are the next steps. So I will mention that uh, in, in my role as chair of the board for CASA, uh, we did um, write a letter to the Privacy Commissioner uh, of Canada asking for an investigation into this program, just to make sure that it was following correct protocol and that student data would be protected at this time, just because we know so many students are going to want to access this program in order to get some, uh, some much needed funding, but we want to make sure they do that safely. Right. And I'll, I'll, I'll start at the beginning of what you said kind of there. I mean, I'm, I'm a mature student myself, you know, I'm 27, but... Um, I'm ineligible for the CSSG because I received the CRB, even though now that I'm going back to work, I'm only working one or two shifts a week. Um, and also, you know, I, if you do the math, it's only $10 an hour for, for students for a volunteer job. And after it's actually taxable. So after tax, I worked it out. It's about eight twenty-seven an hour. Right. Um, I believe some of the eligibilities are saying that you can only do one, one at a time, one job at volunteer job at a time. Um, if you wanted to do it all before you went back to class, then you'd be working 55 hours a week doing $5,000 for, for 500 hours. Yeah. And I, I think if I could just add to that briefly, it would be that, you know, also students won't be able to receive that money until September. And we know that like students need this funding now to be able to pay for groceries, to be able to pay rent. And so, um, again, as, as happy as I am about the money being invested into this program, I'd also like to see uh, you know, some more information or some clarification about why that money will only be provided to students uh, at a later date, uh, not right now when a lot of students are out of work and needing that support. And uh, what, what sort of changes do you anticipate with the Canada Student Service Grant as uh, we has now pulled out uh, due to conflict of interest and, and, and increased scrutiny? Yeah, to be honest, I'm not sure. I think that um, there's obviously been a lot of discussion about that connection over the last uh, few days. So I, I think it's an understandable uh, change, but it, it does raise some questions about, you know, is the government going to be administering this program directly? Is there another organization that, that will be able to take that on? And something that I've been hearing a lot uh, from, from some of our member schools uh, across the country uh, within CASA is, you know, just wondering uh, on the student side, you know, is there going to be an organization that can connect to, you know, local volunteer projects uh, across the country for students to be a part of? Or is there kind of one organization that can take that on? So my hope is that, uh, I hope that this decision was made with a backup plan in mind and that uh, we won't have to wait uh, too much longer to kind of know what the next steps are going to be. And did, did you originally have the concern, I mean, you, you mentioned that you had the concerns about the volunteer um, aspect of the program if, if students are being paid um, below minimum wage rates. I mean, um, you, and you had mentioned about the privacy concerns as well. Um, that was something I hadn't even considered, to be honest. I know it's a for-profit chair. It's a half for-profit charity. I was just wonder if you could talk maybe a little bit more about that. 
Yeah, well, uh, from our perspective, it was a little bit odd to see uh, that a, a government program like this would be kind of administered through a third party site. And uh, so initially when the, the program launched and the websites uh, were created, we were kind of identifying kind of an odd back and forth between going through the government job bank and then being taken out to, you know, I want to help.ca and that being a third party. And so I think there was just a bit of confusion uh, over, you know, whether this was information that was being submitted to a government program, whether it was information that would be submitted to a third party. And uh, because there's very different, and, and again, this isn't something I, um, you know, I'm an expert, expert on by any means, but there's some differences in terms of the, uh, the Privacy Act in terms of how that data would be collected. And really from our perspective, like the, the primary goal here is to have students be able to access the funding that they need. And I wouldn't want there to be any kind of, uh, you know, red tape or any kind of barrier to students doing that. And so I think um, that was the, one of the reasons that, uh, you know, I know CASA had uh, been interested in sending a letter to the Privacy Commissioner was just to make sure that, that students were being protected at this time. Um, but really just a bit of confusion over kind of where this program was being housed, whether it was still a government project or being kind of run through through we instead. Yeah, so it sounds like they were even keeping the, the student associations in the, in the dark about it as well. Uh, yeah, completely. What, I, what I noticed too, uh, I went right on the we website for it. And originally, the, the program was was talking about uh, teachers getting paid uh, mm -hmm. as group leaders paid $12,000 a year, or, or to lead slash mentor 75 to 100 eligible students into the program. I mean, did you have any concerns originally about conflict of interest with, with teachers and students? Yeah, I think that uh, that was, again, something that, that I had only uh, started to kind of understand in the last uh, few days or to hear about. Um, I, it did seem a little bit bizarre for this program that there would be um, almost kind of teachers acting as recruiters um, in this way. I think that uh, something we've been you know, hoping in, in all of these programs is that students will still have access to, um, you know, the mentorship that they would get in a, in a summer job or the opportunity to gain some experience. Um, but it was interesting to kind of see, you know, some money in this program that wasn't necessarily going directly to students that was going to trickle down elsewhere. And so, you know, coming back to the fact that, uh, you know, this is a, a very significant investment from the government and uh, it was the, the largest investment in students uh, anywhere. Um, we were happy to see that, but you know, you also want to see some accountability in terms of where that money's going and, and trying to get as much of it as possible into the, the pockets of students. And I, I had read about your involvement in the fall elections last uh, in October and how you were trying to get students involved. Can you elaborate that on that a little bit? Yeah, so uh, CASA ran a get out the vote campaign to try and mobilize uh, student voters ahead of the um, the fall election and really that was an opportunity for us to to try and get you know uh, students who are usually um, not as engaged a voter group or youth um, to actually care a bit more about the election to help uh, them understand a few issues and to hopefully mobilize a few more to actually vote and uh, given the fact that young people made up the uh, the largest uh, voting category in, in last year's election we knew that it was going to be really important uh, to make sure that they were uh, actually getting out and voting and, and having their concerns heard. Um, so on our own campus, we ran uh, a few events trying to bring in our local Halifax candidates in to, to answer questions from students. We also hosted a debate. 
Um, and kind of on the federal level, what we were able to do after that was, you know, talk about how many students we had connected with, how many students had pledged to vote, and uh, to kind of identify that we're a strong voice of students uh, across the country. So we were able to connect some of that work into our advocacy when we meet with stakeholders or, or meet with elected officials as well. So it was kind of a, a nice opportunity to connect the two sides of it. Um, and, you know, potentially with a, with a minority government, you never know when we might be in uh, an election period again. So uh, we'll see if uh, we have a, another get out the vote campaign to run uh, at some point in the next few years. And would you consider running one? I mean, I know this fall there's there's an election scheduled for Halifax. Is is Smusa going to be involved in running a get out to the vote campaign at all for that? Definitely, we're we're looking into that right now, and our uh, our VP external uh, Samantha is is looking closely in terms of how we can kind of improve some of our uh, local advocacy. So in in years past, we've really focused on the provincial and the federal level, um, but we've already started some conversations with some other schools in the Halifax area. Uh, notably the the Dalhousie Student Union to see if there's some ways that we might be able to connect with them and collaborate on some projects when it comes to local advocacy and so topics like the the U Pass and um, you know other things that are specific to Halifax including the election I think it would be great to make sure that students were at the forefront. And did you have anything uh, anything you wanted to add about uh, any student concerns that you've heard so far that are common uh, and anything that's come up uh, quite a bit from students from you? I think one of the biggest things we've been hearing about, and, and we touched on this a little bit, um, but it's, you know, about the access to digital tech for the fall and uh, especially for students that, you know, maybe come from like rural parts of Nova Scotia or rural communities in other provinces as well that, you know, are maybe not wanting to stay in Halifax and pay rent in the fall, but know that they can't complete classes from home. So something that we've been working on, uh, again, at the city level and, and going up to some calls for the the federal government also is that um, we've been trying uh, to get uh, some movement on the plan to, to get high-speed internet access to all rural communities, um, which actually was a, a, a platform promise from the Liberal government uh, during the election last year to have that done by uh, 2030. And we've been basically asking them to accelerate that timeline because a lot of students are going to need that access way sooner. Uh, and so understandably, I think it, it might not be done in time for the fall, but we're hoping that there'll be some work uh, completed and similarly trying to see if, uh, you know, there's some things that, that we can do on our end or in collaboration with the university to make sure that students have uh, access to technology that they need in the fall as well. So I know that back in uh, back in March and April and continuing over the summer, we've uh, worked with the university to offer some laptops out on loan to students that might need them um, uh, in order to uh, kind of complete their work in, in summer classes. Um, so hoping to see if there's some additional opportunities or some funding that we could get together in the fall for students that need it. And how can students reach you that have uh, different concerns? Yeah, so I would say uh, the easiest way is through our website. So at smusa.ca, we have a list of our, our full team uh, and kind of where each of our responsibilities are. It has our, uh, all of our emails there and all of our cell numbers also. So uh, if students want to send me a text or send me an email, I'd always be happy to, to set up a phone call or something to, to chat through these concerns. This is such an ongoing situation that we're really keen to, to hear from students as often as we can. So if folks ever want to hop on a Zoom call with, uh, with myself or with anyone on our team or, or similarly, you know, to, to shoot me a text or an email, I'm always happy to, to chat about these issues. And, uh, you know, we're really able to do our jobs well when we uh, know kind of what students are, are feeling. So I'm, I'm happy to have had this opportunity to, to chat with you a little bit, but similarly happy to talk to, to students whenever it works. Uh, Bryn, I really appreciate you joining us today, and uh, yeah, thank you. And thank you for reaching out. I appreciate it. It's great to chat with you.
on a last note. If you like today's show, please subscribe, rate, or review. I want some input into who you want me to interview next time around. Let me know. You can reach me at jeremy.heb at smew.ca. Check out the smewjournal.ca for more content. Until next time.